New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Like the law of gravity, there are universal laws of the spirit that are available to all of us. They rest within our hearts and at the heart of every religion and spiritual tradition. Often we discover these laws through various mentors we have met along the way. These encounters with great teachers inspire our spiritual quest in a myriad of ways. Sometimes they teach crazy wisdom, or they throw hurdles in our way. Other times, they quietly transmit practical wisdom for living wisely and well. Today, we'll be exploring the quest for spiritual laws in everyday life with our guest, Dan Millman. Dan Millman is a lifelong student and longtime teacher of practical wisdom. He has devoted his life to mastery, first in sports and then in everyday life. He's a former world trampoline champion, Stanford gymnastics coach, and Oberlin College professor. He teaches the peaceful warrior's way and is the author of 18 books published in 29 languages. His book, Way of the Peaceful Warrior, was adapted to a 2006 feature film. He and his wife, Joy, live in Brooklyn, New York, and his books include The Law of Spirit, The Life You Were Born to Live, A Guide to Finding Your Life Purpose, and Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, The True Story of My Spiritual Quest. Join us for the next hour as we explore the extraordinary journey of a spiritual warrior with our guest, Dan Millman. I'm speaking with Dan by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Dan, welcome. Thank you, Justine. Always a pleasure. I was just starting out, I think, uh, when we spoke the first time. You were. We've we've been speaking for a long time now, going on almost half a century now. Dan, you really share with us many defining moments in your life. And I want to go back to your youth because I felt like you received a kind of life mantra very early on when you were very young, and this is when you were jumping into a sand pile. Do you recall that that moment? I can still recall it. I can picture it and feel it. Uh, 
being a kinesthetic type of fellow, um, I was about six years old at the time, and um, I followed around uh, one of my early role models and mentors named Steve Usaw. He was streetwise. He was about nine years old, and he and his friends um, would we like to explore uh, houses under construction in our neighborhood. The construction workers weren't there uh, on the weekend. So we would climb up to the roof and it happened. There was a sand pile about 20 feet below the rooftop. And Steve looked down at it and leaped off and soared down and, and sunk into up to his knees in the sand pile. And then his friends followed quickly but I was only six and I was, I really wanted to do it, but I was afraid. So I, I went to the edge and looked and backed up, went to the edge and looked. And then Steve yelled up something that did become a, a sort of a, a meme for me and a guideline for my life. And he yelled, Danny, just stop thinking and jump. And I saw that he had done it and I realized I could do that. I just stopped thinking about it. I bent my knees, I leaned, and I leaped, and I soared for a moment of freedom in space. And that became a metaphor uh, for me uh, in my later life. And it served me well in gymnastics, not always that well in relationships. <laughs> right, right, exactly. I love that story. And I also know that early on, you participated in some martial arts. And I'm thinking, Dan, physicians tell us that babies are born with a kind of personality. Some are coming in and they're kind of feisty and active and others are peaceful and placid. So we're not a blank slate when we come in. And I'm thinking that when you did the martial arts, that your personality kind of showed itself because you share with us that you were not so enthused about martial arts because you didn't want your success to depend on someone else's failure. And I thought, wow, okay. And that's when you then got it more into gymnastics. Can you speak about that a little bit? Well, yes, I hope uh some people can relate in their own experience what drew me into the martial arts, uh, which was childhood experience of bullying. Um, the, my mother loved to go to work in the world, so she got me in the kindergarten just under the line. And so I ended up being the youngest child in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, and all through my schooling. Um, and I was not only young, but I was also smaller which worked well in gymnastics, not so much in basketball. <laughs> uh, but I ended up, because I was small and I tended to talk too much, uh, a lifelong habit, I think. Um, <laughs> and that drew the attention of some bullies. So I had a number of bullying incidents that I relate to in, in the new memoir. Um, and finally, I'd had enough. And I asked my father if he'd help me learn some self-defense. Uh, to get my confidence up. And he first took me to a boxing gym and I just, and where I learned very quickly a valuable lesson. I didn't like getting hit or hitting other people. Um, and I, I guess I was more of the peaceful type warrior. Um, 
And, and but later I took judo, which the, the term Japanese term judo means a gentle way and using other people's momentum. And I discovered at a youth center, a Japanese cultural center, they did a judo exhibition and I saw children throwing adults, which just captured my imagination. So I ended up studying judo and later karate and uh, okinawate, which think Mr. Miyagi and the karate kid. Um, so I studied that for a while before I got into gymnastics. But I, I appreciate the point you raised that, that I really didn't like my success depending on someone else failing. I wasn't that competitive in gymnastics really is a performance art. It's not really directly competing with anyone else. Now, I make no judgments. There are people who gravitate to boxing. It's an amazing sport, strategic, um, and, and there are sports for everybody. Um, but uh, I gravitated toward that individual sport where I could just learn to flip. And, and who knew that liking to jump up and down on a trampoline would lead to a college scholarship in gymnastics and teaching at college and everything that followed. Who knew? Who knew? Who knew? And in gymnastic, you call it an immersive physical training. And uh, you also point out there's no pretense in this kind of uh, sport. In, in all sports, there, there's no pretense. There, There's no pretending. I think of Yoda in Star Wars saying, do or do not, there is no try. You know, I mean, it's like, it really, it's hard earned. What would you say to that? Well, well, it is, and it's true in any sport, but there are certain sports I call warrior sports, where the liability is not losing a match or a point or a competition, but it could be losing your life. Things like free solo climbing, gymnastics, um, certain diving events, deep diving, those free divers who go way down under the water and various kinds of skydiving. So these are warrior sports and they demand absolute full attention. Um, so now looking back, I, I see that gymnastics, it wasn't just a sport for me. It was the beginning of a spiritual training. When I started doing uh, meditation, I'd already developed certain concentration and ability to be absorbed in the zone, in the flow, as it's been called. Um, and sometimes I compare meditation and uh, say uh, an exercise like push-ups. They're both exercises uh, for different purposes. One helps you see the nature of mind and the other is you develop stronger muscles. Um, the primary difference between meditation and push-ups is that one can't pretend to do push-ups. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. Right. I know that that at a very young age, I mean, amazingly so, at 14 years of age, you actually won the uh, California Men's Trampoline championship and most of the competitors were college athletes and and then later on even still very young at 18 you competed in the uh, 1964 world trampoline championship in london and you you talk about like being in the zone you like 
were in the zone in that moment. That that was a very, very precious, I think, moment in your life. Well, it, it, I learned in that moment, because I was jet lagged, I'd flown in and arrived past midnight the night before. I had four hours sleep. Um, the other uh, top athletes at the World Championships uh, had their coaches with them. I didn't have anyone with me. I was 18. They were older. Um, and I discovered then after doing some unimpressive things in the warm-ups that it didn't matter who won the warm-ups. What mattered was the moment of truth. And when it came down to the final routine, somehow uh, I, I rose to the occasion. Um, but, you know, training had always been play to me. It was always just this immersive fun. of What could I learn more? It was this challenge. Um, and I guess I did, as Joseph Campbell might say, I did find my bliss. Um, I always aspired to leaping in the air. I, that's why, as I explain in, in the new book, um, my love of Superman and Peter Pan, because they could fly. And, and to my young psyche, that represented rising above, uh, transcending. And so that, that quest, that spiritual quest began with, with a love of transcending, finding the bigger picture of life, which I, I guess guided my psyche in the choices I made later. And I, I, I am going to imagine being weightless, too. I mean, at the peak of the jump, I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dan Millman, and he is the author of many books, including Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit. It's the true story. It's his new memoir, The True Story of My Spiritual Quest. And if you want to know more about Dan and his work, you can go to his website, PeacefulWarrior.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dan Millman. He's the author of a new memoir, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit. And Dan, you you mentioned warm-ups in a minute ago. And I'm reminded of something that you teach when you when you were coaching uh gymnastics, that you you had people walk on a like a beam and and you would advise them something very special about walking that beam and when they're in competition. Can you share that with us? 
Sure. That that just that exercise came up to me in a moment of inspiration. Uh, I noticed that some of the gymnasts I coached at Stanford University would do pretty well in practice. They could do their routines, but in competition, in that bigger arena with audiences watching and so on, they got the jitters and sometimes uh, fell apart. Um, and so I asked them, we had a team meeting and I said, look, guys, um, if you had a regular balance beam one foot off the floor, they're four inches wide, it's not a men's event, but, you know, everyone has walked on the balance beam. And I said, if you did that, would that be difficult? And they said, no, of course not. We could all do that. I said, well, fine. Um, and what if I put that same balance beam between uh, two 50-story buildings? Uh, and I said, would that be equally easy? It's still four inches wide. You know you can do the skill. And they went, oh, no, oh, no, that, that wouldn't be so easy. And I said, well, well, why? What's the difference? Assuming there's no wind or anything up there. And they said, well, because if you slip off, you die. And I said, well, yes, that's a psychological difference. Um, but the physical challenge is the same. And I said, think about training and competition. In training, you're rehearsing. It's like a performance, and you're rehearsing for it. You're treating that as ordinary. And then when the competition comes, suddenly it feels different. But I said, what? That's like the high beam. And I said, so I suggest when you practice, pretend you're on the high beam and that it really counts. Don't be casual about it. And when you're in the competition before a large audience and you know this is the routine that the judges are watching, pretend you're on the low beam and just go through the routine in a relaxed way as you would in practice and see what that's like. And, you know, I, I encountered a different version of that element, actually. It's a story I occasionally tell. I love to tell it. Socrates, the old character, this is a story I tell. He's watching me in the gymnasium one night. And I'm, I'm doing, I do a full twisting double somersault dismount off the high bar. And I stick my landing which is a good thing in gymnastics. I figured I'd quit on a high note. So I went, yes. And, and, and then I just ripped off my sweatshirt, threw it in my workout bag. And Sock and I were walking down the hall afterward. And he turned to me and said, Dan, you know, that last move you did was really sloppy. And I went, what are you talking about, Sock? That was the, that was the best dismount I did in weeks. He said, oh, I'm not talking about the dismount. I'm talking about the way you took off your sweatshirt and put it in your bag. And he was reminding me I was treating one moment on the high bar as special and another as ordinary. And that, again, he reminded me there are no ordinary moments. And then he added something that I actually, that line I got, I slipped into the movie version of my book at the time. Um, he said, Dan, the difference between us is you practice gymnastics. I practice everything. And at first, I didn't understand that. Was that some never-ending self-improvement program, trying to practice everything? But what he was really talking about, I understood later, was most of us do things. We do our homework. We do our work at, at, at our job. We do the dishes. We do the laundry. But when we say, I'm practicing the laundry, I'm practicing the dishes, uh, then we're doing it with a different quality of attention. Then we are striving to refine or improve what we do. 
How many of us still try to improve our signature every time we sign something? We just take it for granted. It becomes ordinary. But the moment we try to practice something, it brings us into that zone once again in everyday life. See, most athletes are doing spiritual training, but they don't know it. They're too focused on the goal, the, the points, the winning the match, the competition. They don't realize they're learning spiritual laws. They're learning how life really works. They're learning process. They're learning presence. They're learning mindfulness. Um, but they don't, that's not where their attention is. So that's when I began to teach gymnastics in a different way as a path or a way of development like judo, kendo, aikido, they all end with the word do, which means way or path, means to a greater end. So, in fact, when the um, a coach from USC once came up to Stanford and he said to me, Dan, I hear this rumor uh, that you have your gymnasts meditate before competitions. Now, that was, meditation was still kind of a fringe activity way back in the 70s, early 70s. And I said, no, no, Jack, I, I'd never uh, uh, have them meditate before a competition. I have them meditate during the competition. <laughs> and, and he only got that way much later. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it is a form of meditation, dynamic meditation. And it's more difficult doing it in daily life. And again, it's known today as mindfulness, but it's really just paying attention to what's going on in the present moment inside of us and outside of us. And so that's why I, I say it wasn't just some, uh, I wasn't some, I was just a jock. And then suddenly I started teaching spiritual ideas. It was a long training and I hadn't even met any of the four mentors yet. Well, you know, Dan, um, that reminds me of going back to uh, that championship, trampoline championship. You're 18 years old. You're in London. You're by yourself, really. And there's a moment. I, I just love this realization that you had. You get in the taxi, and it's taking you to the airport. Now, you've just had all these accolades. You won all this. You know, everybody's cheering and congratulating you and everything. And you have this realization that the taxi driver doesn't know anything about that. And the people on the street doesn't. You, you, and in fact, you say it's only a minor footnote in sports history. And you have, you have the presence somehow to realize that. I, I, I just, can you speak to that? Well, I, I believe that humility, a certain humility comes from perspective, seeing our lives and ourselves in perspective within a larger context. And so, and it, and it doesn't diminish our lives. Our lives count. Each person, their families love them and, and we're connected to other people. Uh, in fact, I believe each of us has a story that's our treasure because there's not a single story on the planet like mine, like yours, or anyone else's story. Uh, our lives are like a novel being written, and we never know what the next chapter is going to be. So I, I did appreciate what I'd done. No one could take that away from me. I'd had some good moments, a, a very good 30 seconds or 45 seconds where I happened to win the competition, but I realized that several other people might have won it on another day or the, on another hour. So I did see it in perspective. And it brought a degree of, of, of humility, as I mentioned in the book, that 
that I wasn't a legend in my own mind and never would be. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I, I'm not as humble as I used to be because I heard a quote, a wonderful quote from Golda Meir. She said, stop acting so humble. You're not that great. that's great wonderful wonderful so that that really um gets us into some of the mentors um that you had and and also before we get to that i i'd like for you to say something about socrates and the real socrates you were limping or you had that motorcycle accident and all your vision of being in the Olympics disappeared and now you're you're in another phase in your life. And so say something about Socrates and who who was this character and who is he now? I'd be delighted to. And in fact, for those uh, familiar with my work, if they've read my first book or seen the movie, uh, they know Socrates was based on uh, a cosmic old fellow I met. He was a service station mechanic. I met him about three in the morning. So it was inspired by that character. Um, The thing is, um, those who don't know my work, uh, I named him after the ancient Greek. But let me just do something a bit unusual. Uh, Just read a paragraph or or two short from the preface of my book. and and here's what I, what I would share, because you know in the preface I introduce the four mentors who I worked with over a twenty year period, two decades, who um, helped influence my life and work and opened doors of insight for me. Um, they were part of my process and lineage. But then I acknowledge some readers may ask, well, what about your teacher Socrates? Is he one of the four mentors? If not, why isn't he included? An understandable question, since my first book in the Peaceful Warrior Saga blends autobiography and fiction, leaving just enough ambiguity to lend an air of mystery about the old service station stage I called Socrates. To resolve such ambiguity, I now offer this small revelation. I am Socrates. That is to say, the literary character I named after the ancient Greek is a projection of my own psyche. I was not Sock's student, but his creator. As my muse, he assisted in his own creation. Our dialogues were not remembered conversations, but flowed forth as I wrote them. To put it another way, Socrates is real. Dan Millman is a fictional character. (laughs) So those of my readers and seminar attendees who desired a teacher like Socrates had him all along. I love that. And I love that in the book you end each um, part with with a dialogue with Socrates. And it's like you're going deep within your inner wise, wise muse, you know, and we all have access to that. And yes. that's, it's, it's just a wonderful, wonderful concept. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, and also, I, I, I wanted to ask, as we talk about some of the the true life mentors that you mention in the book, I want you to say something about the idea of moving from teacher to teacher. You know, is is that kind of a spiritual promiscuity or what about that? Are, are we being dilettantes as, as we move from 
teacher to teacher. Uh, anything you want to say about that? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, and and I, I do clarify uh, uh, that there are spiritual vagabonds who collect this initiation and that initiation and say, oh, yeah, I know this teacher, and implying almost that they've risen above the teacher and gone beyond them. Um, there are a couple of, of uh, themes in the book. I want you to go into those themes. I don't want to cut you off, but so I want to tell remind our listeners, I'm here with Dan Millman, and he's the author of his newest book, uh, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, The True Story of My Spiritual Quest. I'm Justine Willis-Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dan Millman, and we're talking about a theme that runs through your current memoir. And I'd love for you to help us understand that theme and share with us. Right. And, and the theme actually will take on more meaning uh, for many people after we go through and touch upon the four mentors. But I do want to acknowledge from the start that I believe that all teachers are human. And all humans have flaws, failings, and foibles, including me. We all have our quirks. Some are major and others, fortunately, in my part, are relatively minor. I have a wife who uh, kick my butt when I need it uh, and keep me <laughs> on the straight and narrow. These various mentors uh, I, I studied with over one after the next over 20 years. And I believe the people who ask, well, how did you find these particular mentors? When I was young, uh, part of my foundational years, I loved self-improvement. I studied memory courses and speed reading and speed mathematics um, and uh, ventriloquism and sleight of hand and martial arts and so many other things. I loved to learn and do skills um, and improve myself. But one day, and probably it was toward the end of my college career, after I'd shattered my leg in a motorcycle crash and so on, uh, I started asking bigger questions, and and I realized that no matter how much I kept improving myself, only one person benefited. But if I could somehow touch the lives of other people and influence other people, that made my life more meaningful and worthwhile. Not everybody is called a, as a teacher, and that's fine, but I was, and I think that's what made a fundamental shift. And because of the commitment I felt to share what I had learned with other people, through my own uh, language, without jargon, but just in practical ways, I think that opened me up to finding these teachers through a series of apparent synchronicities. So there was nothing casual about my search, but I should also explain by way of context that some people pick a religion early in life and stay with that their whole life. They pick a martial art and go that way their whole life, they, or a philosophy or a path or a belief system. And one of the fundamental tenets of what I teach today 
is that there's no best teacher, no best book or philosophy or religion or diet or exercise or martial art. There's only the best for each of us at a given time of our life. We have to find out what works for us. So even though my teachers were definitely heavy hitters, they had the mojo, um, still, um, they were only the best for me at the time. But fortunately, they seemed to each represent a fundamentally different approach to the spiritual search. So when I wrote the book, I didn't presume, oh, people want to read about this Dan Millman character. Um, but through my story, I believe I can convey, and I hope to, to convey, and I believe I succeeded, in conveying some guidelines and shedding some light on this thing we call the spiritual quest I believe we're all on a spiritual quest for what we'd call fulfillment, happiness, meaning, purpose. Um, so whether or not we'd use those words uh, or it's conscious or not, I think we're, we all share this universal quest. And that's why I wrote the book to, to shed that light. And so I ended up through a coincidence almost uh, discovering a man named Oscar Ichazo, whom I called the professor. And through his school, which some have heard of it, the Arica School, named after a city in Chile near the Atacama Desert, um, where 50 Americans from Esalen Institute went down and committed to train with him for almost a year, including Claudio Naranjo, who had his own lineage with the Enneagram work. But all of that came, the modern day Enneagram work, all was sourced from Oscar Ichazo, even though Gurdjieff had worked with the Enneagram symbol and the Sufis and the Jesuits to a degree, the depth of knowledge was not available until Oscar Chazo brought it into the world. But that's just one of his many contributions. Um, and I'm very grateful to him and all my teachers. So I studied in depth, you know, a 40-day training, then an advanced training, and then more work. And I taught with the school and, and it engaged 30 to 40 different sorts of meditations for different purposes and outcomes all woven together with physical movement, deep breathing, many different kinds of it's, breath it's work. It's stringent. Yes, it was. It was intense. Um, and and it, it really was transformative. But Oscar claimed it led to enlightenment. He was using a technological approach. This is a global heritage, not just from Hindu or Zen or Chinese um, cosmology, but a global heritage he had absorbed and and put together in an incredible way. I could have called him the headmaster of this school rather than the professor. But that was a, a first approach. Yeah. I, I know one thing that he did, uh, he did face reading. Mm -hmm. And I know that this comes from the Dzogchen tradition in the Himalayas in Tibet. I mean, the Tibetans have been doing this for centuries. So yes. that just kind of, he really is a wonderful curator in some way yeah, it's so true the, the modern enneagram books uh, people take a questionnaire and find their their popularized uh, personality type um, but oscar had actually observed that the monks had a lot of time to observe people and observe differences in the symmetry of faces and so on and he when we got a, what he called the eagle fixation um, it was done by reading the face and the neurological connections between the brain and the face. And somehow he discovered this correlation. So it was a more objective uh, process to determine one's point on the Enneagram of sensitivity. 
Um, and, and I was trained to do that as well uh, at, at some point. Um, so it was one form of self-knowledge. And this was the whole idea to know yourself to the bones, literally. Uh, there was yeah. something, Dan, that uh, you did in the Eureka training at the end, at the very end of it, I believe, if I get the sequence right. Uh, he had you all individually go into a room like an empty room it had a bed and you covered the windows so it was like sensory deprivation i'd love for you to talk about that and and tell us what it what it did for your re-entry back into the everyday world well sure for for these esalen explorers who were down in chile they actually went into the desert for seven days and experience some some serious sensory deprivation. Uh, but what we did in the urban environment, um, near the end of the Eureka training, the 40-day, we uh, I found a room at the Y, and I moved all the furniture out of the room. I was able to do that, uh, except for a mattress on the floor. I covered the windows with some she- old sheets I brought along to minimize uh, any sensory input. And the instructions were, just to sit, walk around, but not to do anything, essentially, not to keep busy or just distracted by anything. Um, you couldn't read, it, you couldn't no, write, no reading matter. You couldn't nope. uh, video games. You know? Just yeah. the sun passing uh, vaguely through the faded window. Uh, and I went from Friday uh, late afternoon until Monday morning. And it was sometimes peaceful, sometimes maddening and frustrating, uh, just sitting and being alone with oneself. Uh, and I didn't know that much was happening, uh, except uh, Monday I emerged into the world, a temporary experience, albeit, but I, I was seeing the world with the eyes of a child, the fresh wonder that some of us experience going to the mountains or the woods or a new environment, going to Europe and seeing different environments. We wake up in a different way, even at a subconscious level. And we go, wow, look at that. And for a while, we experience, re-experience the fresh sensory input of childhood uh, without all the filters and thinking about and interpreting and projecting. It was just an immediacy. So that was the purpose of that concluding exercise, one of many. Uh, some people have used sensory isolation tanks, you know, where they're they're floating in water, the flotation tanks, and they have kind of hallucinations. Uh, it's another form of sensory deprivation where we go into our, deep inside into our own mind. Uh, so it was just one of many, many different kinds of exercises we did. And yet I found, I discovered, because I was married, as I explained in the memoir, young, and uh, um, I, my relationship uh, from the start wasn't, uh, I wasn't ready for it. I wasn't mature enough. And the training did not make me, it did not help my relationship. And I realized there was a firewall between all this inner work and my everyday life. Mm-hmm. Um, so it made, the inner work made me better at doing inner work. So I saw the limitations of the monastic kind of approach to working on oneself. um, And I needed to learn from daily life. Uh, And that's why I ultimately uh, moved on after some time with gratitude for what I, all that I learned 
where I then discovered uh, through another apparent synchronicity, the guru. Yeah. All right. And now what a wild ride he was. (laughs) Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So um, let's see, you're now you've found the guru who is part of the crazy wisdom tradition, so to speak. And you were there not for the 40 days or for the different trainings you did with Arika. You were there for eight years and and also for some wild reason, your your new relationship with joy, which you enjoy to this day that she joined you with it. I it just I was just amazed here she what a fortunate life I think for you to have this companion on your journey, an equal companion on your journey. Well, sometimes I think not equal, greater than. <laughs> I think she's an older soul, and I've been playing catch-up probably our whole relationship of 46 years right now. Um, yes, and Joy was a trainer for Arika as well. When she was still a student at Oberlin, where I first met her, she ended up doing the Arika training and advanced training. So we were together throughout this time. And in fact, uh, Joy read every draft of the book. You know, I turned the book from a 500-page overwritten, um, uh, unruly hedge of a book to a bonsai, uh, trimming it down to a little over 200 pages. Jack London used to say it takes hard writing to make easy reading. Mm. So I did the work necessary, and Joy helped with that. Also, my daughter, Sierra, who is also an author. Um, So it was a family affair. And Around the seventh draft, when Joy read it, she said, you know, Dan, I see things just maybe a little differently from the way you do. I'd interpret them differently. And what if I wrote a few things for the book? And I went, that's a great idea. So as you know, she also has commentaries sprinkled throughout the section on the, on the mentors and our relationship and, and life. Um, so I thought it was a very lovely contribution. And it was. So it's great to have these like asides where Joy is saying, here's my memory of it. I, and I loved it. I respect you so much, Dan, that you included that. I'm here with Dan Millman, and we're talking about the mentors he encountered and wrote about in his new memoir, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, The True Story of My Spiritual Quest. If you want to know more about his work, go to his website, peacefulwarrior.com or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org I'm Justine Willis-Toms you're listening to New Dimensions
I'm here with Dan Millman, a spiritual warrior himself, giving us much practical wisdom and his newest memoir is Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit. And Dan, uh, we're talking about the, the mentors and the guru. We're talking about Da Frijan or Adida or Franklin Jones or Bubba Frijan. He had lots of names. And you were part of that community in this crazy wisdom tradition for eight years with joy, living in the community. And I think it's significant for someone to hear what you have to say. How do we discern between a cult and a, a true tradition, so to speak? How do we know we're in a cult or not? Well, that's such an important question. Um, let me say first that uh, all four mentors, the professor, the guru, the warrior priest, and the sage were ra had radically different approaches to life. And the guru, talk about the crazy, crazy wisdom tradition, he once said, I'd rather beat you with a stick than tell you to meditate your way to enlightenment, which, you know, was uh, had some uh, dis dissonance with uh, many traditions that emphasize the value of meditation. Um, his way, the method of the siddhas, as he called it, was he claimed and gave certain evidence uh, to us that the divine, uh, the transcendent shone through him. And by relating through his physical form, we could have a direct transformative relationship. Uh, so it wasn't about learning techniques. That was the major point, which I had already done uh, with the professor. Um, oh, are you saying that it's like a transmission? It, it's a transmission, absolutely. And, and those uh, who claim to be uh, transparent to the divine um, and live illumined lives um, and so this was quite different. This was keeping, he just wanted to keep our attention long enough to be able to do his work, his transcendent work. Our lives, every moment of our day, it wasn't like going to a class and doing work and then you go home and kick back. There was no more kicking back. Uh, weekdays, weekends, morning till night, uh, even in our dreams sometimes, there were conditions, uh, uh, healthful vegetarian diet, certain exercise regimens. Um, and, and I, you know, I go into the conditions. In fact, he once joked, he said, you know, this isn't a cult because it's hard to get into and easy to get out of. <laughs> and he made a very good point. He also, the guru pointed out that um, there are cults around baseball players and movie stars and theater conductors and symphony conductors. Um, a cult is a group of people gathered around a central figure or idea. Uh, uh, mainstream cults include Christianity, Judaism. I mean, they're all, but we the, the term has taken on a pejorative sense. If you say that's a cult, it means it's bad. But he said the question is not whether something is a cult, but it's whether it's benign or if it's manipulative and, and secretive. Um, so... It's not a matter of whether it's a cult or not. It, yes, we were gathered around this central figure. The professor stayed in the background, but he was the center and epicenter. And again, Joy and I lived the way of life within a community household, going up every weekend to the land and sitting with the guru and doing service and so on. So it was a classical kind of relationship with this 
guru figure. However, the professor and the guru, they were distant figures. I only asked, interacted with the professor once. And the guru was a figure up on a, a stage. We all bowed down when he entered and sat. Then we'd sit up and commune with him. So, um, but when I finally met the warrior priest, he was this, we had a relationship. We traveled together. He befriended me. We became colleagues. We talked together. And this was the transition where I began to teach. So he was transformative. Uh, those who are familiar with the life you were born to live, my life purpose system, I learned the rudiments from the warrior priest. Uh, for 14 years, I taught spiritual growth and quantum leap and self-knowledge through knife fighting. This was a martial arts-based course. He was a former bounty hunter and martial arts expert and fencer. Uh, and he taught martial arts, but he was also a metaphysician and healer. But the, what made him different was it was just exciting being around him. He was uh, he tended towards the dramatic, I guess. Oh, say. He did. He did. Um, when he taught race car driving to awaken what he called the basic self, the subconscious or our inner child, um, it was not like learning driver instruction. It was like going on a hostage rescue mission. That's the kind of excitement I th that was I think, Did I read that, that he did bungee jumping? Had you do bungee jumping off of a hot air balloon? Actually, no, I did that. This was oh something I taught oh, years oh later. Oh, I, in an advanced training I taught, I took a group out. And the same day, we not only did the bungee jumping out of a hot air balloon, but then we went skydiving. Oh, so that my was, gosh. Yeah, it was quite an adventure training. So that but, kind of came, came from your work with um, Michael Bookbinder, the warrior priest. Well, the adventurous aspect of it. And, yes. I, you know, I didn't study with these four teachers then to parrot their words or try to convey all their teachings through me. That wouldn't have been organic at all. But they opened doors of insight. So I was able to create what I call the peaceful warrior's approach to daily life. And by the way, I view everyone as a peaceful warrior in training. We're all seeking to live with a peaceful heart. But there are times we need a warrior spirit just to march into everyday life. And the challenges that we meet. It's so, so. true. It's so true. I, I'd love for you to go to the the fourth one. Um, yes. The sage. Um, yes. He he teaches constructive living. David K. Reynolds. So okay. say something about him. Yes. Um, he actually the major contribution. He brought me back to everyday reality. What is realistic? What's controllable? To focus on that, and also the debt I owe to all those who've uh, supported my life, not just my parents, though I did some contemplations of uh, all they did for me that one can easily take for granted, think, saying it was just their job to do it. Um, so he had a multifaceted teaching, but it was simple but not easy. Uh, and, and yet uh, Dr. Reynolds, who uh, uh, got his PhD in anthropological psychology uh, with his fellow grad student, a fellow named Carlos Castaneda. Um, they graduated together and they knew each other very well. Um, Dr. Reynolds wrote this fundamental book and his teaching is around constructive living, just like mine is around the peaceful warrior's way. And it was a perfect uh, a mentor to meet. And we're still friends. We correspond regularly. Um, uh, with mutual respect. And 
uh, it was such a great thing to be able to acknowledge him and acknowledge all my mentors and my lineage. But he really brought me back to earth. Now, he's one that would teach. We don't have a spam filter on our brain and mind. I think that when you discovered him, it was kind of at the peak in at least in the Bay Area and all over, maybe uh, it was in the San Francisco Bay Area. You know, positive thinking was a big thing and, you know, conflict resolution and all of these right. new age things. And right. he just cut through all of that. He, he cut through all of it with his own kind of sword. And I think the significance of this uh, is that we've grown up in a psychological culture and the assumption, many of us, especially those who are consciously searching for spirit and transcendence and, and so on, we assume we have to fix our mind or our, have just the right emotions like peace and courage and love and kindness and feel all the right things and, and think positively in order to live wisely and well. And he did cut through that. He pointed out the reality that he learned from his own mentors, that we have less control over the thoughts that simply appear in our field of awareness, random thoughts. We have less control over the emotions we're feeling in any given moment than we do over what we actually do. And so he focuses us on the key question of living wisely and well, which is, what do I need to do now aligned with my purpose? Living purposefully moment to moment. You can't really try to summarize somebody's teaching. He wrote numerous books as well. Uh, I have a link at the end of my book to the various mentors and their books and so on. Uh, So those were the four mentors who who contributed to my own work. I'm so happy to be able to acknowledge them and my lineage because all teachers have a lineage. We stand on the shoulders of others. Um, And in fact, it was... Michael Bookbinder, the the warrior priest who taught me the concept, really, of spiritual laws, of immutable, deep principles that we can apply to help overcome the hurdles on our life path. And uh, there were, I wrote a little book, The Laws of Spirit, which has laws like the law of balance, the law of presence, the law of choices that uh, are essential reminders for how to live well uh, and to rely on these as we would on the law of gravity. I highly recommend that book. If if people really pick up that book, uh, it's really wonderful. And I just would like to go out with a story that just made me cry, just made me cry, Dan. I'd love to go out with this story. You have become quite a good writer. I mean, really, I mean, with lots of editors and help and so forth. But uh, there was someone that mentored you or or at least turned you on to great literature. And that was Mr. Thompson, your high school teacher. Yes. You were able to search him out. I'm going to I'm going to tell the story because we're running out of time. You searched him out. And he turned out that he was living in hospice and and you got a letter to him and you heard from his daughter Mary who said she read that letter to him and it put tears in his eyes and he died a couple of days later and she used that letter in his eulogy and this is just something like in the, in the laws of of um of taking that step by step we can all make a difference even with a small gesture Yes. Oh, thank you so much, Dan, for being with us today. I've enjoyed this so much. Me too. Thank you. Thank you. Dan Millman, the author of Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit. And if you want to know more about his work, go to peacefulwarrior.com. 
or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3751. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.